Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my colleague Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. We're here with our special guest, Tammy Faye Starlight, all the way from New York City. Welcome. Oh, thank you very much. And I'm very honored to be here. It's, it's, it's lovely to have you here, Tammy. Thank you and so much. We are going to be talking a little further down the line about Miles Davis, and we're going to be talking about D.A. Pennebaker, the late D.A. Pennebaker filmmaker. We're going to be talking about everything that's new on Rock's Back Pages this week. But we are going to be mainly talking about you, Tammy, oh, and God. even more specifically Just about you. Just everybody turn off the podcast. <laughs> 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 but we'll you as Marianne Faithful. Oh, yeah. Tammy as Marianne. Oh, yeah. So to, so to put this in context for our listeners, mm -hmm. you are essentially a kind of you're a performance artist. I suppose and you could and say music, that. You're a musician, but you're a performance well, artist. And what you're doing next month in New York and you've mm -hmm. you put this show on at least once already but yeah. you are performing yes. Marianne's brilliant 1979 album Broken English yes in its entirety, in its entirety. am I right yeah. yes you are With and more and, and there's more. more so tell us tell us a little bit oh more my. about well this. Broken English I had done in its entirety originally in 20. 14 at Lincoln Center. So prestigious. Yeah, I know. Look at right? you. Yeah, <laughs> Lincoln I, Center. I, you know, I, tr I knew the wonderful man, Bill Bragan, who booked the atrium at Lincoln Center, and I was begging him, which I do. That's why I'm on the show, because I, I pretty much Lucy Ricardo my way onto everything. Like, please have me on your show. <laughs> and I, you know, so I would beg him, and I had been doing a show about Nico, and which absolutely actually came it was before that and after the Marianne but when I said to him you know I was thinking of doing Marianne Faithful's Broken English because it was at the suggestion of a musician I'd been working with Kevin Salem who said why don't you do Broken English I thought oh my god yeah. it's one of my favorite albums from you know my teenage years and not that it came out when I was a teenager but <laughs> <laughs> it's timeless it's timeless it's so, timeless Tommy. I was barely a teenager but so I asked Bill Bragan, how about Broken English? And he had such a soft spot for Marianne for that particular album. He said, yes. And so I did that. And I just kind of extemporized monologues before each song. And then I did a kind of Marianne, you know, I think I called it Cabaret Marianne, where it was just a melange of her songs. And that was reviewed in the Times in 2015. And at that point, I was working with Barry Reynolds, who was yes. her co-writer, you know, her co-writer and... Probably her most, her most like notable yeah. collaborator. Yeah, really, her in many words. Her Keith Richards in a her sense. Keith Richards. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, well, we'll probably come on to yeah. Uh, yeah, well, her relationship exactly. with Keith. Well, there's, there are similarities that I'm sure that you know. Sure. You know that there are several similarities. They both play guitar, and there's another thing that they both. Having come, Marianne. So oh, <laughs> I can't think what you're talking no, about. No, does I'm, this get acted out in the, the performance? Well, you'll have to come see. <laughs> you know, there are very loose laws in loose. New York yeah. cabaret and theater. So, <laughs> so I decided, and then when I was doing, and it sounds so salacious, I was doing Marianne in <laughs> in New York at Joe's Pub, and you know, and then at Lincoln Center, and then at this club, Pangea, where I'm performing now and i heard through a few people that she was not pleased that i was doing it and i understand because i wouldn't want that either you know screw you i don't don't yeah. take my persona right. you know upstart um, <laughs> <laughs> you know eve harrington miss starlight she's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, she's very like i was listening to the audio and it was like that's who she reminds me of bet davis oh is she, yeah oh yeah, yeah. cross with keith richard yeah cross with, <laughs> yeah she's uh, she's very brilliant and you know she has this kind of aristocratic Air. Oh yeah, and she is an aristocrat. Oh, she she won't let you forget it. And God bless because that's, it's <laughs> she's, also, she's probably a baroness. She, her mother, she? Was, her a mother was a baroness. Yes, that's right. Eva von Sakamasuk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me, and broken English. Is it explain broken English? what an explain oh. broken English. Can we contextualize yeah. that in the Marianne so, story? Well, so I heard that she didn't. She wasn't thrilled with me, and I decided not to do Marianne for. A while, and then last November, I realized that 2019 would be the 40th anniversary of Broken English. So I decided to ask her via Facebook if I could 
Very do it. Brave. And I thought, well, I thought, you know, that's uh, that whole YOLO, you know, you only live once. So <laughs> just <laughs> like such a, it's my trite, you know, motto. I have a few mottos, but that's going to be mine now. Yeah, it should be <laughs> YOLO, YOLO. YOLO. Like anything you do, just, you know, that kind of is a blanket cover for any, you know, insane thing that you do. So I messaged her on Facebook saying that it was going to be the 40th anniversary and I would love to do this album because I'm always thinking of what can I do next? You know, what project that nobody is asking me to do can I do next? So I said, I'll only do it with your blessing. And she wrote back, oh, do it, darling. It'll be great. And I thought, <laughs> oh, my God, I, I have, I'm free. I can do this. Mm. And so I, Barry was back in town. He'd been out of town. And I contacted him. And my husband is also in the band. And he's a musician and a great one. And what does he play? In this show, he plays bass. He also plays guitar, piano. He teaches. He's, he's magnificent and knows everything about rock and roll. If you ever have him on, you'll hear everything, you know, he's... It'll be longer than the spoken really, word you know, <laughs> middle mark. I actually made him hate watch Bohemian Rhapsody with me so he could just... I said, just watch it with me on Amazon so you can tell me everything that's wrong. Did you say hate watch? Hate watch. <laughs> yeah, because I knew you that he would hate it. New York to explain these yeah. terms. It, it, it's funny because I, I got into... Oh, Facebook again. I got yeah. into rouse with various of our American journalists mm-hmm. who are obsessed about the inaccuracies in the Oh, film. yeah. And I keep saying... It's not a documentary. Yeah, and yet there was, you know, he kept saying, okay, that song didn't come out then, that didn't come out then, that didn't happen at Live Aid, that's not... So, anyway, that's my husband. But (laughs) So so Barry is is in the show, and Esther Ballant, who has been playing violin with me, which is a gift. She was in Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise. She's in his latest movie. So, yeah, so I decided to do Broken English, and I decided to connect each song with one of the seven deadly sins, even though there are eight songs. Mm. The, the eighth one is... You invented an eighth, eighth I, well, I, sin. An eighth <laughs> sin. The eighth one is kind of a, you know, it's a summation. Of, it's all the sins, because mm. it's Why'd You Do It, mm. is the yeah. eighth song. So, the last song on the album. Yeah, the last it was, song. It was a Heathcote Williams poem. It, yes. Set to music. It was. And, and, and in, I mean, for those who haven't heard it, I mean, I remember when this album came out, yeah. I was like, I don't know, 20 or something, and I was so shocked by it, because the C word was the first time I ever oh, heard the C word on a record. Yeah, I don't think it had ever... And it's such a, it, it's a, just a brilliant song, isn't it? it brilliant way to end Oh the my album. God, it's brilliant. And It's a song, can you explain what the song it's a, is? It's, I describe it in the show as a, it's a, in the form of a dialogue about a man who's telling his lady friend, shall we say. <laughs> Delicately that, put. Yeah, about... He had just told her about an affair that he'd had, and this is her response. Mm. And she's asking the question, why'd you do it? And mm. she gives various reasons. She posits various reasons why. And they include the C word, the D word. and uh, It's so graphic, It's so it? graphic. You know, that, the, the line about yeah. her Every time I, in the bed, in, in our bed. I mean, it's your, just most sort of... Yeah. One of the most powerful songs about sexual jealousy I've oh, ever been written. Very, very, very All powerful. set to music. Why'd you do it, you screamed, after all we've said. Every time I see your dick, see her cunt in my bed. And the music was written by Barry and Joe Mavity, who was her lead guitarist at the right. time. And I think the whole band kind of chimed in. And she says in her book that it's a kind of, I think she says it, unless... I said, maybe I can't now I can't remember if I if I wrote if I made this up or if she actually said this but it's kind of like Jimmy Cliff meets Jimi Hendrix because she says there are Jimi Hendrix part of it was it's a little the melodies all along the watchtower Jimi Hendrix's version so but Barry kind of put a reggae it's a sort of cod it is a cod reggae class yeah. reggae. We're, we're big on cod reggae oh yeah so <laughs> yes fishy rhythms yeah fishy <laughs> rhythms I guess I'll, Barry will like that um, so so I connect each song to one of the seven deadly sins and I have monologues before each song and in March I realized I didn't connect why I was talking about the seven deadly sins. There was no and it's they're only alluded to until at the end when I say it. But then now I've kind of scrapped the old beginning, which was her rediscovering her youth and and the the year nineteen seventy nine in particular and how that was the last year before everything went to hell. Yes. Let's say you know, yes. it was the last year before you know, it was before Reagan, it was you know, and sure. 
Margaret Thatcher had just been elected prime minister. so When the album came out. Yeah. So it was indicative of a tectonic shift. And so it was the last gasp of real freedom that we had. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there are probably several years like that that people would think, oh, it was 62 before Kennedy was assassinated the next year, you know, or. Mm, Yeah. um, Yeah. But for me, it's 1979 because I have a distinct memory of in 1980, especially when Reagan was elected. Even though I was young, things there was like a pall that was cast over the earth. You know? <laughs> that's, that's a very nice way of putting so, it. Yeah, it's still laugh. So it's you know we kind of go back to seventy nine, and then mm. I just do monologues that I they seem pre associative, but they're they're written, um, which I don't always do. I sometimes just extemporize. So when Amy Linden came in mm-hmm. the other day, I love Amy. She's wonderful, and she she was absolutely hilarious. Oh, it she was, was, it was so a great funny. episode. And <laughs> she mentioned you, and mm-hmm. she talked about the way you actually take material from interviews that that, that people like Nico and Marianne have done. Yeah. With the Marianne, is, is that is that the case that you've? Done? No, it's. Okay. I mean, I I kind of call certain you know, bits and pieces of dialogue that she's said in interviews that I've listened to over and over and that I've read. But the Nico play that I did in 2014 was based on that Melbourne interview that she did. And because I'd wanted to do a play about Nico and I was listening to that interview and I thought they're mentioning every song that I love. And it's such a bizarre, you know, interview because this is extraordinary. Yeah, he's trying to keep it on track and she keeps... And they're in this darkened room. I yeah. mean, it's yeah. really amazing stuff. Yes. You know, he's, he's meeting this person. He's obviously kind of hugely yeah. admires. Yeah. And she kind of goes off on these peculiar tangents. Yes. Like, she, I bet she, she's probably pretty high at the time. I, mean, I don't think she ever managed to really stop doing opiates, which, of course, Marianne yeah. did. And mm-hmm. one of the things about Broken English yeah. that's worth pointing out is that uh, it, it, it came after quite a long period yeah. or, where she was just like in the wilderness, yeah, yeah. wasn't she, Mark? I mean, she was notoriously going basically perched on a wall. In like, Soho. In Soho. In so- yeah. Um, she was also living down the world's end, Lots Road, in a kind of house full of junkies. Yeah, like stuff. a junkie squad. Um, yeah, she, she she hit the rock bottoms that you hear about in NA and so on and so Yes, forth. she did. Um, and you know, she was still using at the time for broken English, wasn't she? She, she, she was. For yeah. a while to come. She yeah. might have yeah. been on, I mean, I'm guessing she might have been on methadone. I mean, what, yeah. I mean Chris Blackwell was certainly taking a, a chance, yeah, <laughs> giving he, her a record. He yeah. was, and, and he actually came to the show in 2015. Did he? Oh, he great. did. Oh, fantastic. And it was wonderful to meet him. It was, uh, you know... I feel so hashtag blessed because um, I do because I get to meet like I get to you know I like everybody that I love I push my way into you know so you know I got to play with Barry and see and you know Chris Blackwell came to the show so it was very thrilling but yeah she was I think she went to I don't think I'm telling tales out of school because I think she wrote about this that she went to Hazelden in I think it was 85 yeah and that's when she First got took, took her last clean. shot. Of heroin, maybe was yeah. Well, yeah, she struggled a bit with booze for for a number mm-hmm. of years. I think after that, you mm-hmm. know, she was clean, sober, you know, for several years, and then I don't know exactly what happened, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you know, she still put out brilliant records throughout the, especially Vagabond Ways, mm-hmm. you know, which was I, so beautiful. I, I, I remember vividly when Broken English came out mm-hmm. because. Our view of her in this country in particular was, first of all, she was this girl who made these very small pop, sort of pop folk records Mm. in in the 60s. Yeah. And then as an appendage to the Rolling Stones. Right. Uh, And then she disappeared. And then suddenly this record comes out, and it's just nothing like we would have expected to hear. No. In this extraordinary rapt voice that she's got. Yeah. Right. Her voice had been a kind of high lilting soprano, and then it's, you know, this, like, ravaged, you know, guttural alto that, you know, is... And it really took a lot of people by surprise. I mean, the reviews were quite mixed, because Mm -hmm. I think people just couldn't get their heads around it, or her. Yeah. You know, what what is she? Sure. And it was quite almost like a new wave record, wasn't it? Yeah, it it was. Synthesizers... And it, it very much was of its time. It's very 1979 It record. is. You know, you know almost, Steve yeah. Winwood's on it, you mm. know, playing all the synth parts. And Fantastic uh, keyboard yeah. playing on it. And Amazing. I mean, it's just, a, it's just a fabulous record. Especially on the Ballad of Lucy Jordan. Oh, you know, so from, Which, of course, is a Shoal Silverstein. Yeah. So which we, I think was it Dr. Hook. Did, yes, Dr. Dr. Hook did it yeah. first. Did and that then first. she, I don't think anyone can top 
her version. Um, no, it's just superb, it's, isn't it? it? It's chilling. Yeah, and, and then there's, of course the version of of Lennon's working oh, class hero. Yeah, yeah it's, which and many. I mean, at the time, it's like even if you didn't know her mum was a baronet, right. you sort of <laughs> thought, come on, Marianne. Yeah. But somehow she gets away. Oh, with I, it. I, actually, I I prefer it to his original. Oh wow! Yes. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, I do. Kind yeah. of a darker arrangement, it's, you know, it's, very it's, bass it heavy and absolutely, which is great. Yeah. And she even says in that film that was made of her 1990 performance at St. Anne's in Brooklyn, "Blazing yes. Away," and she says that's that when that's Hal Wilner, that's Hal Wilner, yes, who also just came to it when I did it at Joe's Pub in. 2015 or yes. 2014. I know and he's said nice things about He you. has. And, and there's no greater seal of approval. I know. Really, is oh, my God. And, you know, again, hashtag best <laughs> life. But, uh, where were we going? Working class hero, right. Yes. She says in the intro to it that she wanted to see if someone from a different class mm. or class. Because mm. uh, <laughs> uh, the American way of saying class doesn't even imply it's the not, word. It ain't classy. It, it, no, it's not class. <laughs> It's not classy. It's you know. It's oh, she was a really classy broad. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's good. That's a good Brooklyn. You know. Yeah. So from a different class. Uh, <laughs> you know. And she says that if she could feel the same feelings, and she found out that she could. You know. So um, <laughs> she does say that, and she, you know. So I kind of go into how I make up how Lennon wrote the song because he was envious of Mick Jagger and all the things that Mick Jagger could do. Especially dancing, just because. It's a great, um, it's a great line. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it, 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 I give reasons why Lennon yeah. was jealous. I made them up, you know. Why I'm Lennon going was jealous your, of Mick Jagger because of his education sure. and his athleticism and his ability to dance on stage and how John loved mixed dancing. And I only, only know this. All because, this is pure fabrication. Yeah, because my husband, who is you know a musical compendium, who hate watched Bohemian Rhapsody <laughs> with me pointed out to me years ago that John Lennon has an interview where he says how he hates mix, and I won't say the word, blank dancing. I think it was from 71. It's a word that starts with F that I would... And you it, can it, say it on this podcast, uh, Tony, I'm afraid. Uh, yeah. I, wish I, I wish we could say it. No, uh, I, I, it's, and it's not the F word that you would think of first. Oh, it's oh. a different... It's a slur of oh. sorts. So, okay. Is it fake? No, Fag. <laughs> with okay. yeah, with another right. syllable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that kind of. Da- I think that's what he says. Okay. Um, said. So I just imply that he loved it, and that. Oh, uh, and the fact that Mick had Marianne, yeah. you know, and that mm-hmm. was another reason for John to be envious, and that's why he wrote "Working Class Hero." Um, Actually, I mean, so, that sort of takes us on the audio. Well, I was going to say, let's hear this voice. But, well, yeah. Well, I mean, this, uh, <laughs> apropos of her relationship with all these people, there's a nice clip of. Where she talks about shagging keys. Oh, did you say clip or clip? We're gonna oh, listen. okay. We, yeah. we, I thought it was something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We don't use that word on the podcast. I, I was wondering. I just, not yet. I, I, you, you, you can say faggot, but not that. Yeah, because that's a cigarette. Yeah, that'll know? get us thrown off. I yeah, I know. You made a very interesting comment on who do you think you are about how in, in your, it's only in your 50s that you learn to sort of enjoy sex and so on. Because you, only quite ago, late, yeah. Yeah, because that was quite interesting. Kind of, I think a lot of women... I mean, actually, only with Foss. Only with Foss, yeah. And my one night with King. Well, was that great. Yeah. great. <laughs> and he wrote so beautifully about it. Mm. <laughs> we had a great night. And we betrayed no one. You know, no. it was before I was with Mick, and it was before he was with Anita. We were both completely free, and we just had a great night. Oh, yeah. So, I thought Mick came back, and there was a song. No, that's Keith's story. Oh, his story. Okay. I mean, everybody's entitled to their own oh, reality. It's a great story. But it's not. That's not true. No. Okay. No. <laughs> No, that was lovely. Yeah, yeah. Do you kind of, do you wish you had perhaps continued with him, but you've become great friends? With Keith, I yeah. think we would both be dead. All oh, right, okay. Mm. Yeah. Addiction and all yeah. that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, sure. I think he was already in love with Anita. He was, yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I love it. You're great friends with Anita. She's, uh, she's... Not that much. I love Anita because she's an old friend. But 
in fact, if she hadn't been with Keith, and it was like a forced friendship, I think. That's pretty interesting. She's someone who I think has a lot of relationships with men and not many friendships with women. That's yes, the impression I, I get. think she is good friends with a friend of mine who has helped me tremendously, Penny Arcade, the performance yeah. artist who is brilliant and who Marianne saw her show in the 90s and asked to be in it. And so Penny had her do Why'd You Do It um, in the okay. show and they've become... And they're, they're good friends. Yeah, okay. So... I know that she loves Penny. She, she talks about broken English. She talks mm-hmm. about her relationship with her manager slash ex-lover, Francoise Gravard. I Yes, I've heard stories about Francoise. Oh, yeah, do tell. Oh, well, <laughs> not, they're, they're not complimentary. Right. Um, that he is, you know, just a bit of a perhaps kind of Colonel Tom Parker, but with benefits, you know. <laughs> he's a funny little guy, because I've interviewed Marianne a couple of times, and he's been kind of hovering around yeah, both yeah, that times. Seems to and be his, he's, he's good not verb. what you'd sort of expect. He's mm-hmm. he's kind of like a French Roberto Benigni or something. He's uh, oh. kind of funny little dark guy who's you, scurrying you, around. Do you remember her. that notorious yeah. Lynn Barber interview with Marion Faithful <gasps> yes, in, in The Observer? Uh, yes. Uh, and where, first of all, I think Lynn obviously took against Marion hugely and is fantastically rude about her. But she also keeps referring to this creepy guy and yeah. sort of stuff, you know. Who's telling Marianne what to order or something yeah, yeah, like that? Yeah, it, it, it was in, it at was the strange. restaurant. She is 2014 that they mm-hmm. haven't been in relationship. She's, she's obviously still miss. I mean, he left her yeah. romantically, mm. even though he re- stayed as her manager. Mm. And she talks about what a good manager he is and so on. So, for which mm. I suppose, in some ways, her ongoing survival as a recording artist and so on possibly does owe something to to what he's done. Yes, but anyway, um, she talks about. Um, her family, her son being taken away from her when, right. uh, and how she now has a good relationship with her son and her, gra- her grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Though she says she's not really a family person. She, she doesn't do family in yeah. commas. Which I understand because sometimes it's, you know, it's a little bit onerous. <laughs> it can be, you know. I think one thing that comes across from this interview is she's supremely selfish. Uh, I get, you know. <laughs> I guess Are we you allowed could to say, judge your, you know, yeah, your I mean, subject? But yes. I don't know if you got the the um, mm-hmm. the American show Facts of Life, the Facts of Life from the eighties here, but um, it was do. about it's about girls in a dormitory school. Yeah. Uh, it was a big pop culture, yeah. you know, thing. And the, Mrs. Garrett, played by Charlotte Ray, who was the kind of matron of this dormitory, said. In a very special episode of The Facts of Life, the word selfish gets a bad rap. And I thought, that's <laughs> so, so American and such a great... Um, but uh, So maybe she's just uh, self-protective? Yes, maybe. Or, may, may, but well, selfish well, also is you know, not a pejorative necessarily. No, no, that, that, that is fair enough. I mean, oh, she, really, she comes I don't want to contradict no, your reality no, because, as Marion no, says, you, everybody is entitled no, to their own reality. Not, I, I mean... She, she, in this interview, she really comes across as the sort of grand dame. Yes. She'd done her backing really badly, so yeah. she was in some pain. She gives the interviewer quite a hard time. Oh, yeah. You know? And at the, at the end of the interview, it's really worth listening to the interview, just listen, listen to the end, where she basically calls an end to it. Right, that's enough. I'm, and they have, yeah. then the interviewer and a female assistant have to help her out of her chair as she's complaining bitterly. It's, it's really... Yeah, she, it's, she's such a diva. I have to say, listening to this audio, I found her insufferably narcissistic. Oh, well... <laughs> I mean, call a spade a spade. I really, I really did. I just thought, oh, my God, man, you know, you, you, you really... You behave as if you are the the queen, really. Well, she, it, she's... and I guess you know, in a way, she she is. She's the queen of her particular domain, yeah, which yeah. I, is herself and the mistress of the, her domain. The mistress of her domain, <laughs> yes. And maybe that's part of how she survives. You know, I think you know, kind of like Mick Jagger, how he, you know, is still he's not quite jogging around the stage, but he's walking very briskly around the stage, <laughs> yeah. you know, after having a stent yeah. put in his heart, because... 
she, again, she, she talks about you know, she hasn't had any contact with Mick at all for years. Even though yeah. he's one of my great friends. The word <laughs> friends is used a lot but, but, in but, this. But, yes. but, but, but uh, when Mick's partner died... Mm. Lorraine Scott. That's right. She sent him an email. I didn't expect a reply, and I didn't get one. You yeah. know? But then she talks about the rest of them. She said, I see Charlie every now and again. And Keith, Keith's lovely. You know, she's deeply fond of Keith. Yeah. And we'll listen to a clip at the end of the show where she talks about... In his book, mm. for the first time, her contribution outside of system morphine to writing lyrics for Stones is acknowledged. Her input, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Her know, sort of artistic uh, input. Because yeah. Yeah. she was, she was very well read. Yeah. She was. She, and she didn't come from, she didn't come from Dartford in no, Kent. No. And she was well read. She was brought up by sort of upper class bohemian types, wasn't she? Yeah, I mean, she, she was, her parents divorced when she was six and her mother took her to live in Reading and that's where she went to Catholic school. Yeah. And yeah, I think she downplays Reading. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, she, yeah. she, her father started this kind of commune called Brazier's College in Oxfordshire. So right. he seemed to be quite a character. Um, <laughs> she even says in her book that he, he, I think he and his father invented something called the frigidity machine, which was supposed to unleash a woman's libidinous <laughs> energy. Oh, those were the days. I know. That, you know, that was before... Perhaps woman's consent was taken, you know, was counted. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah. maybe not. I mean, unleashing a woman's energy I is. I mean, sh she's a relative of the Baron from Sakamasa. Yeah, Yeah, because he wrote Venus in Furs. That's right. Or as she says at one point, Venus in Pelz, which is the, <laughs> I guess, German or Austrian. I mean, she's a great character. I do think, essentially, uh, uh, broken English accepted. I think she's a bit of a fraud. You do? I do, I'm afraid. Uh, I do. I think most of the music she's made since broken English, well, a lot of it, let's just say. Her most recent albums have essentially have been, she sort of says, I don't like to talk about the past, darling. And yeah. yet everything she does, oh. or her whole shtick is about the legend of Marianne Faithful. Yeah, I, I love that. You know, it that, just doesn't that stack dichotomy up, really. In, in yeah. Her, you know, that what she says contradicts what she does, but that's very Whitman-esque. You know? <laughs> so, She'd like that. to move on, don't we? We do, we oh, do. Um, we we so could talk forever about, about this. About, yeah, about, about Marianne. Marianne. Well, I just want to, because the featured writer on the homepage this mm -hmm. week is the great David Dalton, who is one of the great music yes. writers. Yeah. Well, he was one of the original stars of Rolling Stone. Yes. So he was there at the very beginning, and he's written tons of books, and, of course, most famously, from our point of view, right. is he co-author, essentially wrote Marianne's autobiography. Uh, so we're going to do a bit more Marianne, yeah. filtered through David Dalton, yes. who, who's very funny about Marianne, and she's very funny about him. Yeah, you she know, says the, in the, one interview that she thinks that it was dear old David Dalton who um, <laughs> who made the bulk of her first autobiography about Mick and the Stones, and then you know, kind of the the rest of it was just almost like an epilogue. Yes, but yeah, she had some. I remember her saying something a bit sort of sniffy about about the book. I think it's a terrific. Oh, read. it's a great book. I mean, every book that David's written is it's always a terrific read. And yeah. so we, we have three pieces by David, including an interview from 2002 that he did with Marianne, and there's some just there's some funny stuff in there, typical Marianne stuff. Since we've we've talked enough about her, <laughs> I, I think, although I, the one thing I just wanted to note, interestingly, yeah. is that, so the album that had just come out at that point was called Kiss and Time, right. and there's a song on it, of course, you will know, called Song for Nico. Song for Nico, yes. Do, I mean, just briefly, are there mm. parallels between those two that you, you would say are valid? Yes, I think they're both blonde, or Nico for <laughs> time until she went yeah. and um both of Teutonic really, ancestry and both, they both took heroin uh, they both took heroin that's also very <laughs> salient and they both acted as well yes. Nico and La Dolce Vita mm -hmm. and Striptease which was a fantastic film if you haven't seen it no I, I think it's Jean-Luc Poitrineau is that his the filmmaker Serge Gainsbourg you oh, know okay. wrote the like 
you know, mm. this stupid pronunciation of mine. He wrote the title <laughs> song that Nico good. Nico did, and but he used a Juliet Greco version. But so they both acted. They were both muses for brilliant songs. Nico for "I'll Be Your Mirror" and perhaps Femme Fatale, although they said that that was could be Edie Sedgwick. But they were both. You know, for she was amused for Jackson mm. Brown to a degree, and, of course. Yeah. Yeah. and Marianne, Leonard, Leonard in, Cohen. In, in, in the interview, Marianne doesn't want to be regarded as amused, yeah. and then a moment later claims she's still amused to everyone. Yeah, I she, rest my case. <laughs> yes, yes. If you, only, you want to call me amused, darling, yeah. it's your business. Yeah, that, it's, that, that. again, it's the dialectic that's so fascinating. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, but so, what does it mean? She never met her. She never met. Me, she said Cohen. they. She saw her once right. on a plane, maybe in. 64, 65. Right. The curious thing is we've got the first mention on our site of Nico is a mm. 1965 report about the setting up of immediate records. Yeah, yeah they and both she, were... And, and she's at a party with Andrew Oldham, the launch of immediate. Yeah. And she was going to release... And you'd have assumed they would have met. They'd been in the same room. And yeah. the aegis of you, Andrew you, Luke Oldham. Yeah, because yeah. they both had singles on, you know, Andrew mm-hmm. took both of them. Yeah. Um, I think he had more success with Marianne. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. It was well, Tears, Go, Tears Go, By. Go By was a huge hit. Yeah, huge yeah. hit. And I'm not saying... The Gordon Lightfoot song that Nico did, with the flip side being The Last Mile, which was a song that Andrew Oldham wrote with Jimmy Page in what was said in one book in about 10 minutes. And it kind of sounds like it, but it's they both had a Brian Jones connection. They were both, I don't know if you would say intimate with Brian Jones, but they both... I think Marianne was not intimate. Yeah, she says in in one interview that's on a French TV station, she says, he touched my breast. You know, so and he tried. I think he he just was unable uh, due to the copious consumption. Name Brian Jones probably just drunk and just fell over. Yeah, and just stops his fall. <laughs> uh, but according to the Richard Witts book about Nico, according to that, Brian, you know, was with Nico for a while. They were at Monterey Pop together. They were and yeah. every, absolutely yeah, right. Yeah. Think, well, there's another. Ca- so actually, that's a perfect segue mm-hmm. into. We've just lost. D.A. Pennebaker, the great documentary yes. filmmaker, Don D.O.N. Pennebaker, known to his friends as Penny. Penny. A, an adorable <laughs> man. I met him a couple of times. And it just loved him. And 94 when he died wow. last week. 94. I, I think it was the Scorsese film that killed him. I really do. I blame <laughs> do Martin. Really? Yeah. Oh, I mean, really? he saw that and he thought, what the hell? Well, so he, of course, made his two most famous music films are Monterey Pop. Yeah. And I think you see Brian and Nika probably wandering yeah, around in do. the fairgrounds. But but even more famously is the Dylan film Don't Look Back. Yeah, that's um, why I think the, which the documents the nineteen sixty five tour of, of the UK. Yeah. I mean as as it happens, we're also posting an Adam Sweeting interview with Penny, Penna Baker, mm-hmm. from July nineteen eighty eight. And there's a sh- clip in there's a bit in moment in that film where this woman who's like the mayoress of whatever town she's everything kind of ushers her three sons in and is, is overbearing and pompous. And the question is, was this set up? And Don says, I probably wouldn't be opposed to setting it up if I thought it would work. But what I know is that it never works. The minute you set something up, your protagonist, let's say Dylan, realises what you're doing and he sees you're making your movie and he's not interested in your movie. He's maybe interested in his movie and what you can find out about him. But the only reason he's going to give you entree into his life is because you're filming his life, not one you invent for him. Mm. Which I think is just, in a sense, that's a sort of documentary filmmaker's creed, really, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes, um, yes. Well, this long interview that David Dalton did with Penny Gadfly, April 1999, some really just interesting stuff in there. Um, actually, one of the funny things, you know, in connection with, with that and Monterey Pop is there's a very famous shot that you will remember when mm-hmm. Janice and Big Brother are on stage yeah. and it cuts to Mama Cass and the crowd like them, going, yeah. oh, wow. Yeah. And, and what you learn from this interview by David Dalton is, is that she wasn't reacting to Janice oh, at all. It was just spliced in there. Oh, it was something else. Oh, but he felt it was valid. It, you know? it is valid. Yes. Yeah. Because she could have been doing that with Janice and you didn't know, or it could have been internal. Yes, yeah. you know? exactly. But Panna Baker, so he was 94, so he was a lot older than... Dylan and and any of the artists that he was making films about that mm-hmm. time. But he was one of the first documentary filmmakers to work in that in that field. Albert Grossman came to him, would you be interested in making a film about 
about Dylan. Yeah. In, in um, his Sweeting interview, he's very fond of Albert Grossman, actually. He, he, he was he, fond he, of Albert. You know, um, everyone else sort of treated him as just yeah. this monster in a way, and but... Penna Baker actually has a lot of time for him. Yeah, a lot of time for yeah, him. exactly. And I mean, I think anyone who's seen Don't Look Back, I've, I've seen it three or four times. I mean, it, it is, it's a brilliant film, it's, not not just about Dylan, but no. about the business mm. of being on the road. I mean, the famous yeah. scenes with like Tito Burns, all this extraordinary Absolutely. stuff going on. And it really is, it is cinema verite, yeah. you know. Well, He's well, just there with this, he actually invented a lightweight 16mm uh -huh. camera in order to be able to do much more sort of, you right. know, off-the-cuff stuff. And that was partly what gave him the freedom that he well, had. We've seen bits of the subsequent tour film he did with Bob Dylan with the yeah. band, mm -hmm. which, is in terms of film of live music, is some of, is the, best, some of the best live music I've it's, seen shot. It's just fantastic. Gorgeous, and gorgeous music. And yeah. what also I liked about Don't Look Back is the the relationship between Dylan and Joan Baez, you know, just that dynamic yeah. was... I thoroughly you know, enjoyed the public humiliation of Donovan. That, oh, gave, me, that, that was, gave me a great deal of pleasure. <laughs> he, oh, he really was. I mean, and, but here's a funny little thing that I learned from David's interviews. Uh, the famous signs that Dylan yeah. Yeah. at the beginning when they're playing Subterranean Homesick Blues, mm -hmm. most of those were actually drawn or written by Donovan. Well, he, was Bizarre. he was useful. He was useful. Donovan, make yourself useful. Didn't he write Sea of Green for Yellow Submarine? They couldn't come up with a rhyme, so he oh, came up with... Oh, you could be right. I, I'm not sure, but... Huh? And again, he's a useful guy to have around. He was. And yeah. though, though he has an appallingly high opinion of himself, which is really isn't justified. But by But again, keeps him alive. You know, that, that kind <laughs> of thing. You know, and he wrote some lovely... You know, season of Mellow the witch. Yellow. You know, yeah. Um, <laughs> Sunshine Superman. Sunshine I, I, Superman. Like the, I like the fact that he gave the Allman Brothers the basis for Mountain Jam. I think that's about as far as I'll go. There you go. <laughs> Can you pronounce the name of the song that they nicked for it? No, I can't. It's very difficult, isn't it? So we won't try we won't that. Try. really important that we mark the passing of D.A. Panabaker yeah. because I think he's one of the great music filmmakers. Yes. I mean, he made other films. He made Town Hall Party, which yes. I think has that great row between Norman oh, Mailer and oh, Jimmy that's Graham. fantastic. Right. Town Hall Party. He made some great films, but Don't Look Back is and Monterey Popper would even mainly be Ziggy Stardust of course he made the yeah, yeah, Bad yeah. Bowie's oh, Ziggy Stardust which is, um, and he, he, he did a film of Depeche Mode didn't he quite an extensive yes he did film. yeah so he was still he was still kind of relevant yeah. and had and had cachet even, even at that yeah. point he worked out of this extraordinary like warren of offices. Did you ever go to his offices on up on East Ninety something? No, Street? no, and no. And you go never... in and you'd get lost because it was just this sort of rabbit warren of very dark offices, <laughs> oh. and then Penny would be right at the end of it. He was such a nice man. There was no airs and graces. Yeah. He, he he was a delightful human being, Aww. and I think we missed by many. Just back briefly to David Dalton. So we've run also. He was very close to Janice Joplin yeah. um, and did two or three of the big, big yep. pieces about Janice before she died for Rolling Stone. And one of them we're running this week, it's from August 1970, and it's an interview with Janice in Louisville, Kentucky, where she's just played with her new band, her newish band, Full Tilt Boogie Band, right. probably the best band musically that she had. Yeah. And it's great. There's a famous documentary or famous footage of a tour that she was on that went across Canada on a train oh and the Grateful Dead were on it right, and band Danko was yeah. on there and you can see so there's these amazing scenes of Janice singing bluegrass songs with Jerry Garcia yeah. playing like a mandolin and Rick very drunk Rick Danko harmonising with her and then you can see David's impish face oh. <laughs> sitting at the back you know that's, so and yeah. that's a claim to fame it, it definitely is yeah. especially yeah. to be with you know Jerry Garcia and and Janice and Rick Danko all together, that's... Absolutely, um, yeah. it was all-star all heaven. So David Dalton, he's the featured writer, those are the pieces by him, and of course, Faithful, the autobiography, yes, is, is, is always worth reading. Yeah. The other free stuff on the homepage this week is to do with Miles Davis, who's incredibly important, influential album in a silent way, is 50 years old. 
Is this, it? Yeah. yeah. 50 years since um, in I a silent way. I mean, I have a severely autistic daughter, and when she decides she likes a piece of music, that's all she will listen to. For mm-hmm. And for about a year, about a, a year and a half ago, Every time I'd see her, we'd listen to In a Silent Way. Really? She, I uh, thought it was always Electric Lady. No, that, 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 she, she moved from In a Silent Way to Electric Lady oh, seamlessly. Wow. But for a long time, we would listen to In a Silent Way. And if you listen, extraordinary, if you listen to it come three times a week for a year, okay. you, you, know, you don't get bored with it. You, well, you, yeah. know, you, you really don't. Yeah. I mean, it's a destroying record because it's basically stitched together in the edit suite by Tim Masira, the, the producer. producer. Yeah. There's only one previous Miles song, maybe Miss Mabry or whatever it's called on Fia de Kilimanjaro, which is a, the a, beginning a, of that sort of which, phase. Which, which is the first point towards what. Yeah. But otherwise, it's an incredibly revolutionary album. Yes. Um, it was. Uh, uh, and I'd say that some of the best playing by people like John McLaughlin ever did is on that, that record. So it's this incredible group of musicians. Uh, some from the previous miles yeah. here, and some going going. Yeah, but apparently Herbie but, Hancock was just walking past the studio. Right, his face appeared in the window, and Miles just Miles beckoned him in. So it's Wayne Shorter, who'd obviously been playing with Miles before. John McLaughlin, as you mentioned, Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock, Joe Zawinul. I mean, three extraordinary keyboard players. Yeah. Dave Holland on bass, and the great Tony Williams on drums. Yeah. But it's really unlike anything that had been. It's a very delicate. Recorded it's before. a really delicate yes, record. Delicate, exactly. You know, Miles got noisy later. I love Jack Johnson. Mm-hmm. Bitches Brew is the one immediately Bitches followed. Brew, exactly. This. But this record has got very still and quiet moments. And one section is just repeated wholesale at the, at the beginning of side two and at the end of side two. Mm. It's just basically the same recording doubled yes. up. So the actual total recording time is only like 25 minutes for the sub. Yes. It's fabulous. That's, it's that's very punk rock, too. It's like the Ramones. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was something quite punk about Miles, wasn't there? I mean, we I talk about, I always think of him in terms of his just taking no shit from anyone. Yeah. No. Like, a bit like Dylan. He's almost like the black Dylan in that era. He was so intimidating to people and so brilliant. And this record, so Don Snow the, the, wrote this piece for us 10 years ago, a sort, mm-hmm. of, a sort of hymn of praise yeah, yeah. in a silent way. And he sort of calls it almost like the first ambient album. Just he makes claims where he says, mm-hmm. you know, everyone says Eno is the, the sort of godfather of, of ambient. I would say this album mm-hmm. is, like, is like the beginning of ambient. And also it points to things like sort of dub and chill and all sorts of things. I mean, it's, it's, it's real sort of ground zero for a certain but, kind of... But the extraordinary thing is there's never been a record like it since, not even by Miles. You know, no. I've never heard any record which creates the same atmosphere. No. Well, when you though. consider what a powerful drummer Tony Williams well, is right. and how restrained... Apparently he was pissed off that he was being told to play such minimal parts. Just stick to the hi-hat. Just stick to, or, yeah. th- that he... Wolfly played as quietly as he could, just to try and piss off Miles. Okay. <laughs> well, talking of talking of Miles and pissing off Miles, there's a couple of other pieces. No, no, sorry, sorry, the, oh, other, yeah. the other reason that he thought that he was setting up Lifetime at that point. Yes. And first of all, his keyboard player from Lifetime was meant to play in the session. He ordered him away. Okay. You're not playing on the session. I'm okay. not having Miles steal my band. Because John McLaughlin, who's also going to be in Lifetime, <laughs> was on the session. So, so Tony Williams was really just terrified that Miles was basically going to pinch his entire band. <laughs> well, so I just also added this piece by Al Aronovitz from October 1970, and it's just really a short account of just hanging out with Miles yeah. in in New York. And he just writes very beautifully about this transformation, because the transformation is not just, you know, the use of electric mm. instruments and funk rhythms, right. but, but the whole look of Miles and his musicians changed very, very yeah, yeah. suddenly. Well, so, uh, so, yeah, um, yeah, well, so I'll just read this yeah, bit yeah. from Al's piece. To a whole generation of uptown pimps and west side junkies, east village poets and midtown jet setters, west village hustlers and closet heads of suburbia, Miles has been New York's living definition of cool, hunched over his trumpet like a bantamweight boxer, the figure of a question mark dressed in a short, tight jacket with skinny lapels and slanted pockets. 
except now he was wearing snakeskin pants and a suede vest with long fringes. I asked him how come, but he didn't answer. Well, I can tell you how come. It's <laughs> Betty Davis, Miss Maybrick. Oh. She started getting him to wear caftans and all this kind of hippie shit, you know. And she was the one who turned him on to funk. He actually, in his autobiography, gives her a great deal of credit. You know, she was an important person for him. How and she was she tuned into Jimi Hendrix and Sly she, Stone well, and, and all you know, of one that. One of the problems he had was that she was sleeping with Jimi Hendrix. Well, made that that can be problematic, but... <laughs> but creatively, creatively but it kind of worked. Marianne, to bring it back to Marianne Faithful, as, you know, everything comes back to Marianne, she says <laughs> well, that she, she regrets so. not sleeping with Jimi Hendrix more than she regrets not sleeping with Dylan. So it all ties in. Because mm-hmm. Dylan definitely wanted to sleep. He wanted to. I mean, I'm going to sort of slightly go yeah. in circles well, here. It was during that Pennebaker era yeah. that yeah. she met him with, at yeah. the Savoy, yeah. I think. Well, 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 so I think Betty Davis kind of needs to be given credit where it's yeah. due. Not, not, not the Betty Davis, the Hollywood fan. The goddess of folk. And she makes <laughs> almost good records herself. Mm. He was a big freak. He was a big freak! Yes. I mean, there's some really good yes, stuff there. Yes, yes. So that's Miles, 50 years since In a Silent yep. Way, and the beginning of his, you know, jazz rock interlude. And that's that's essentially everything that's free on RBP. So we've, we've done Marianne, we've done Dylan, we've yeah. done Bella Baker, we've done Miles. We're now going to address what's new on RBP for the subscribers are oh, so yeah. Yeah. The birds are in, were in London to play... Only a kind of handful of fairly small-scale dates. This is the Graham Parsons version of the birds. Roger McGuinn being interviewed. He says, I don't think we'll go into country music 100%, but it's pure and it hasn't really been done by pop artists. It's a fresh area. And, of course, in fact, that was also the end of Graham Parsons' involvement because that's the point where he left the band because they were due to go to South Africa. Yeah, it was. And also slightly disingenuous yeah. on McGuinn's part, I think, because well, I think he saw... I, I, McGuinn wasn't really a country fan, and it was Chris Hillman who brought Graham into yeah. the fold. Right. And I think McGuinn was actually quite threatened by Graham's well, country chops. did he erase all yes. his vocals on yes. Sweetheart of the Rodeo? But that, wasn't, that was only because Graham was under contract to Lee Hazelwood. Oh, it wasn't I, because he was right? trying to eliminate Graham yeah. from the thing. There are... Oh. It there just so some, it was a win-win yeah. well, for um, Jim McGuinn. Well, on this, in this article, Graham is credited mm. with singing lead on a whole bunch of stuff. So mm-hmm. certainly live, at least, Graham was singing that stuff. Oh. Um, and they famously played the Grand Ole Opry and caused a real scandal. Yeah. Jerry Gilbert interviews Arthur Lee of Love, Melody Maker, 1970. It's not a desperately interesting interview. You know, it comes up with things like, I believe that European musicians are generally overrated. The people they get their thing from aren't getting a fourth of the credit, which is basically about the people like the Stones stealing black music. But it's interesting, it's an Arthur Lee interview. There aren't mm. many of them, you know. And he, that was the point when he's still notionally, the band was called Love, but this is like the third iteration of it and was basically a fairly boring kind of hard rock band wouldn't you say yeah who was in the, the that, guest seat the other day making making it was Chris Campion was making claims a case for, for the, the post yes. forever changes yeah. love yeah. which didn't really uh, fly uh, with no, us no, I, I, no, I, was, no. I, was, I was very my brother bought all those records I was very familiar with them and mm. I, I kind of liked some of them enough for sale and so yeah, on because so so Hendrix so. plays on That's right. Everlasting First that, um, and in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be putting another interview with Arthur Lee, where, he talks, where he talks audio interview, mm. where he talks about the album he did with Jimmy, which never got released. Mm. I mean, Arthur, in a way, he sort of fits into that conversation we were having about Miles and Jimmy and Sly, the kind of, you know, the, the almost that sort of black hippie thing. And Arthur probably was the guy who started that. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, there's no doubt Hendrix was really influenced by the way that Arthur Lee looked. Well, they, they met in 64. Arthur was producing, and again, this is from the audio interview, which is going up in a couple of weeks, yeah. that Arthur had written was producing a single for an R&B artist. Rosalie Brooks. Yes, that's online. right. And he wanted someone who could play Curtis Mayfieldish guitar. Oh. And someone said, there's this guy, Jimi Hendrix, who can do that, which, of course, is one of the things Jimi really, really can do. Yeah. And that's when they first met. And they, were, they were friends for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> And actually, David Hepworth really gets this it right that Off the Wall is half a great record. Mm. And the half that's great is so great, it's just unbelievable. And the other half is really dracky. The second side ballads. Oh, yeah. Well, ballads tend to drag things down. Well, I mean, actually, this is what he says disco might actually have been designed for him. His voice always comes on like backflips of second nature. And if we're going to have to listen to anybody singing the telephone book, I'll take Michael Jackson anytime. The first side of Off the Wall is occupied by a clutch of dancers that must have even Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards watching their backs. Don't stop till you get enough. Working day and night and get on the floor. Jackson compositions all are more than efficient pegs for his hang-gliding, astonishingly agile voice. Smooth grooves every one of them and loaded with hookery and trickery. David Hepworth gets it absolutely about and that that's, right. And that's without even mentioning the Rod Temperton songs. Like, there's some more mid-tempo, like Rock it, With You. Yeah. It's probably my favourite yeah. tracker. And, and Off the Wall itself. I mean, I know that... There's this sort of... Some people think that because of what's emerged about Michael since that his artistry should sort of somehow be negated. And I, it, I, I just can't do that. I can't, I can't either. Yeah. And nor should we. I, no, think, I, it's, I, I, I think it's I, preposterous. I, I, no. the, 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 I mean, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough is one of the most oh, it's, revolutionary records, you know, dance records ever made, yeah, I yeah. think. It's phenomenal. Such a beautiful, a, a gorgeous singer and, a, and such a percussive singer, uh, really, you know. Well, yeah, because it's not a beautiful voice, yeah. actually. Well, the timbre of it is not, it's not a big, beautiful, rich voice. Yeah, but, when he but, was little, it was, yeah. and then, yes. you know, if you it's hear It's a kind those, of thin voice, but, it's, it but, but what he does it, with it... Well, it's rhythmic. It's yeah. percussive, as you say. Yeah. Yeah, yes, I mean, that's exactly what Hepworth's saying, is that there's no difference between the way he dances and the way he sings. Yes. They're, they're one and the same that's thing. That's it. <laughs> Piece. 1982, Michael Goldberg interviewing Tom Fogarty, brother of John Fogarty, and uh, had been a member of Creedence mm-hmm. Clearwater. And he's saying, it's very sad. Tom has, hasn't seen his brother for a long time. His brother had made a solo album seven years before and had gone silent. And there's lots of different itches being scratched here. I, I mean, Tom says... Creedence was together for nine years before we made it big, and 60% of that time, I was the lead singer. I wasn't a dictator, but I was more of a leader than what I ended up to be in the eyes of our fans. Just the guy who stood there and played rhythm guitar. So after we were into our sixth platinum album, I thought, maybe I could do a little singing, but John was not going to change things, so I split. They did kind of kiss and make up as brothers, and he talks about how the band got together again for Tom's wedding reception, and... They thought they were going to get together again, and John just disappeared off again. Brothers in rock, eh? Yeah, brothers yeah. in rock. Around, haven't <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I, didn't, I don't know. It's, I think it's that last album that they did with Fogarty, and he only sings lead vocal on two songs, I think. The very last one. Was that? The, it was where he sings Hello, Mary Lou. Yeah. His vocals just, uh, it's hard to beat him. John, 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 yeah, yeah. as a vocalist and a songwriter. Yeah, one of the great singers. I mean, in a sense, it's sad because, you know, Tom obviously recognises that John was the real talent, but just feels bruised by the fact that he is not regarded as being an important member of the band. Well, it's the Salieri thing, Mm, isn't it? Yeah. You know. So, oh yes, now we go to 86, now Nick Coleman interviewing Anita Baker. Now, I saw the show that she played that the day before this interview took place or whatever, and it's one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. Nice Baker, the time when you go and see an R&B act, 
and there'll be costume changes, there'll be medleyization of the, your favourite songs. Mm -hmm. There's none of that with her. She just, for an hour and a half, sung in front of a really good band as part of the band. It's fantastic. And she comes over wonderfully in this interview. She says, oh, I love tenor saxophones. I love thick sounds, fat sounds, sounds that have abandoned. You know, I mean, she, she is a musician. She, I've never been a prissy woman. I don't no one to carry my luggage. I'm okay on my own. I'm self-contained. Mm. She also says, black artists sometimes have to sacrifice personal tastes for survival, for financial freedom, and need that for any kind of freedom in this country. She comes over and listens to you really wonderfully. I mean, I really have a lot of time for her. Last thing is uh, another Barbara Allen piece, who's one of my favourites, and it's... It's at the time when Paula Yates, there's the ongoing... She basically kind of documents the ongoing saga of Paula Yates. Do you Yates. know who Paula Yates was? Yeah, I do. Bob, Bob, Bob Geldof. And Michael Hutchins's... Right, right. The Squeeze as well. Yeah. yeah. Paula had, had her house been raided, found some opium and some pornographic pictures, which it turned out are actually just pictures of her and Michael shagging. So you know, nothing particularly grotesque there, just a bit feeble. But, oh, um, I, was it feeble? <laughs> yeah, but, I, did, did it go, did no, the pictures, I mean, were I, they that graphic no, that no, you no, could no. see that? It wasn't good sex. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was uh, feeble uh, sex. I, I, I don't know <laughs> is the answer. I mean, the thing is, this was, she, she was being tried by the tabloids. Because of all of this, you know, mm. suddenly, suddenly, everyone turned on her, and, uh, and 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 Barbara says, Yates's biggest public relations problem is that she's, to use taxi driver vernacular, a bit of a stupid cow, a consummate self-publicist with no common sense or dignity to speak of. She's been wandering the corridors of showbiz in too tight slash too young clothes, too damn long now to merit anything like automatic respect. What, after all, can one say in defence of a woman who started out as a groupie and went downhill from the bed? Well, that's a bit cruel, yeah, yeah. isn't it? That's, that, 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 that's one paragraph in the piece which yeah. is actually broadly supportive of Paula, saying she's hard to support because of what I've just mm. sort of said. But I think uh, those are positive traits. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and, but, but she goes on to say that, that basically Paulie's treatment is misogyny, 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 and, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of truth in that. Anyway, that's my selection. Have you got anything sort of particularly? Not particularly, not really. No, nothing particularly I mean, to we, talk about we, this week. We've got a sort of 72 interview with Keith Richards by Roy Carr about the making of Exile on Main Street. Yes, not, about she, not, not about, about Marianne Ford. No, Sorry. she was gone yeah. by then. I mean, not gone, but she was on the wall. <laughs> I, I, not off the, the wall, wall, but yeah, on the wall. On the wall, off the yeah. wall. And if, you know, if, you, if you're a Stones fan, you'll want to read the interview, but it's not desperately interesting. Keith started giving good quote about sort of 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, before then, he could be pretty dull in interviews. I, I don't know. Those I find most fascinating when they don't have their codified responses mm. or their Rashomon-like sure. memories of what happened, yeah. you know, which could change. Yeah. I, I mean, the other thing is that probably by, when this interview took place, he was almost certainly on heroin. This is 72. Yeah. Oh, and so he, he was probably just like kind of mumbling replies to the questions. Yeah. Because the, it comes, comes out. But then like. it's more fun to try and decipher. Like, it's like lyrics where you have to figure out, oh, what is that instead of. Yeah, except. No, not this No, case. not, not really. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Keith has always, I mean, certainly for a long time been uh, much more sort of candid yes. and just and just sort of spontaneous with, with his thoughts than, than Mick. With yeah. extraordinary accent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Know. So he doesn't really care what he says yeah. and we know that from, from his from his book in a yeah. way. Um, I, I love I love that the journalist Bill Wyman who wrote Mick's response to Keith's book. Yes. It was one of the best, funny, it's, in, it's on it's Salon. It's classic, it? Salon, yes. It's on Salon yes. magazine. Oh, right, uh, I remember that, and I don't remember what it was, and I feel like such a bad I, Stones it, fan it, for not really, remembering what it is. It's bad Stones fan. I'm a bad Stones fan. <laughs> I, I didn't see them on this tour either. Well, dig it out. It's brilliant piece mm. of writing you know he's, he's writing as Mick Jagger in response right. to Keith's book yeah, yeah. you know so, well you know you didn't have to prop up an alcoholic on the stage for the last 25 years oh that's right I remember Elton John referring didn't he refer to Keith Richards as an arthritic monkey I think was that <laughs> yeah. am I misremembering again <laughs> yeah it is I mean you know they Look, they're they're still they were just in New Jersey. Yeah, at a um, diner. with two other guys playing all the guitar parts for Keith because he can't really play anymore. Yeah, oh yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's, you look at his hands, and that's serious kind of arthritic sort of yeah. stuff going on. Yeah, there. so Elton wasn't too far off no, the mark, far was he? Off, no. Yeah. 
But and right, Ronnie is is. Oh, but Ron is Ronnie. God, I've never, I've never liked that band since he joined. No, no, not even. No, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of some girls. So some girls is not a bad album, but I mean, for me, it's it's the four years, sixty-eight to seventy-two. Yeah, that's it. I don't like so stuff before. I don't you, like. You're not a Brian Jones, no. not the blues stuff no, or the not, poppy not, not really. when they were trying to be small faces kind mm, of stuff. Not really. Yeah. No. Small faces. I, do, I love Steve Marriott so much. <laughs> I, I do. I, I, that's I, another show. Oh I, no! If I had that kind of voice. You're going to have to do a male performer at some point. Well, I've done Mick. Have you done Mick? Well, I had a Stones band for since 1999. We started with my friend Jill Richmond, who's now doing publicity for Bernard Fowler's new record. It's um, a small world. That's how Bernard came came to be sitting there. That's right. Jill was. And Jill was. She said to me. When we first met, I had been signed to Bug Music, the music company, and she was working for Bug. And she said to me, do you want to start a band? You'll be the singer. I'll be the guitar player. And she had a name for the band already. The people thought I came up with, no, it was Jill. And it was, I don't know if I can say this, but it was, we called ourselves. And it's. You're going to say it. It's a joke. It's not. It's we not, can always take it out. It's called the Mike Hunt Band, and I, and you know, it's a, I it's don't a, get it. It's a common name in America, and so I said, yeah. I said, how about That's we just do the Rolling Stones yeah. because we both were huge Stones fans, and I said because nobody wants to hear what we have to say. You know, there's no no interest in what like you know our nocturnal thoughts and so i then i said to her why don't we just do albums in their entirety and this was 99 and people hadn't been doing that no. and i'm taking i'm taking freaking credit for yeah, this take whole, it, you know it, at arlene's grocery it started owen kamaski who was doing ziggy stardust and then we started doing the first one we did was you know the classic what everybody wants to hear when you do a stones band tattoo you and we actually skipped a song we skipped the song heaven because it was just kind of this ethereal you know quasi pseudo indian chanting and we thought no that nobody wants to skip <laughs> skip yeah. it's like when when you're you know but yeah. and then we started doing and we became friends with these stones fans who go to every stone show and they have a stones convention every year at wild in wildwood new jersey and we were playing that and i was just Mick, I didn't imitate him per se. I just, you know, talk like this and be really bitchy, you know, <laughs> make fun of, you know, Mick Taylor and all that, you know, where he's playing at Wetlands <laughs> on a Tuesday night, you know, like, you know, and it's just, you know, it just be really. So it insulting. sort of took off from there. It took really, off from that, there. So that, that's that that idea. Yeah, of, and so okay. we started doing, and then just a few years ago, we started without Jill because she was doing, she was teaching, and just a few years ago, we were doing Stones albums at this, you know, cabaret club yeah. where I'm doing the Marion Faithful show. We did... Pangea. Yeah, Pangea. Yeah. We did all the, those four... For four weeks, We, you know, once a week, we would do... First, we did Beggar's Banquet, then we skipped Get Your Gaza, then Let It Bleed, then Exile, and then Sticky Fingers, okay. but without drums. So that was the big <laughs> revolutionary <laughs> way that we did it. And then we did Great. Satanic Majesties a year, almost a year ago with drums, mm-hmm. which was... Now without a drums. Yeah. Well, we, we are really out of time, but, the, but we'll just yeah. bring it full circle just, just to remind listeners, especially in the greater metropolitan area of New York City, yeah. that you are performing broken English, kind mm. of as Marianne. As, yeah. In late September, there are previews starting in mid-September. Yeah, mid, September 12th and 19th. The 25th is the main is the day. the opening night. The, open, the, yeah. the opening night at Pangea mm-hmm. with Barry Reynolds, Marianne's mm-hmm. original collaboration guitar player. It sounds like it's going to be terrific. Yeah. Uh, I wish it wasn't 3,000 miles away. I, I know. It's bizarre. I'll just say that. It's it's bizarre. and um, Well, then have fun. Enjoy it. Oh, and, thank, and, thank you for having you know, me, too. Well, <laughs> It's been a pleasure. It's been a great pleasure talking to you about Marion and everything yeah. else. And uh, um, we wish you a safe trip home. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. Yes, and, um, yes. Look forward to seeing you, you know, perform maybe in London one day. Or I would we'll love get over to, to anytime. But thank yeah, you so much. Thank, thank you. So you. Much. And we're going to mark. Yeah, we, we're going to go out with a clip of Marion talking about how Keith acknowledged her contributions to the, writing the Rolling Stone songs. Great. Okay. We'll be back next week. Or at least I will be back yeah. next week. I'll be sunning myself in Italy. Mark won't be here. Jasper and I should be, fingers crossed, all things being equal, hosting uh, Ian Penman, who has a new collection out. Ian Penman, uh, sometimes regarded as the most 
pretentious writer on pop music ever. We think he's become one of the greatest writers. He's a writer and his name is Penman. Penman, yes. exactly. It's not that, a bad, I mean, you know. You know what what, what else do? could he do with what that name? We actually have on. another writer on the site whose real name is Ian Penman. We had to change his change it because Ian Penman was Ian Penman. <laughs> it wasn't room for two Ian <laughs> Penmans. <laughs> no. So, oh, anyway, um, on all things being equal, yeah. Jasper and I will be here next week with, with Ian Penman. Uh, until then, toodle pip and bye from all of us. Bye. Bye. What really helped me a lot was when Keith wrote his book. Yeah. He did write about how much I did and how much I helped with the songwriting. Yeah. Finally, somebody said it. You know. yeah. I mean, it's not that people haven't asked me. It's just that I never felt it was my place to say, yeah. and it's not. But yes, you, you finally got credit for Sister Morphine. Yeah, a lot more than Sister Morphine. Yeah, but I didn't get actual credit. But I got credit from Keith. Yes, sure. Yeah. Do you get royalties still from some of those songs you wrote? No, I don't. I get royalties from Sister Morphine. Yeah, that's fine. That's I don't good. mind about anything. Else. Yeah. I wasn't there for the money, you know, at all. That was Marianne Faithful in conversation with Maureen Payton in 2014, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Tammy Faye Starlight, who'll be performing Marianne Faithful's Broken English at Pangea starting in September. For details, please visit pangeanyc.com. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Are we out of love now? Is this just a bad?